turn, please, to 1 Kings chapter 18. For those of you that may not have been with us for a while, we've been in a series that I started uh, back in September as it relates to natural authority versus spiritual power. And we've been looking at some of the interaction that has taken place between prophets and kings at that time and how in some of those friction points, we begin to see that some of the prophetic words that they spoke are so current with what we are living in right now. And uh, before I begin, I certainly want to acknowledge the work of Dr. David Jeremiah and Dr. Mark Rutland. They've been helpful in some of the, the information that I have used in some study. So I'm going to ask if you just bow your heads with me. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we recognize that nothing ever gets accomplished unless we allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. And so I pray, Father, that you would knock down every obstacle that would keep us from being attentive, that you would tear down every obstacle that would keep me from being able to communicate clearly what you want your people to hear and what you want the people that do not know you to hear, and that at the end of this, Lord, we would walk out of here saying, I have heard what the Spirit of the Lord has to say to my life. And so, Father, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. When I began this series, we started by talking about um, the aspect of the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh. How many of you were here in that service and we talked about the fact that Moses declared by faith, I'm prophesying to you, let my people go. And in that interaction with Pharaoh, Pharaoh told him, listen, these are not your people, they are my people. And what began to take place was the tension between spiritual authority and natural authority, spiritual power and natural authority, and the conflict that set up there as a result of the fact that even today we are living in a day and age when God says, I have the right of ownership over humanity. As creator God and as the one that have, have redeemed you, I have the right. And we live in that tension today where there are still people that say, God, you do not have a right to own me. And God says, I am in a spiritual battle with the enemy. Let my people go. God declares that he has the right of ownership for us. The second conflict that we examined in this series was the conflict that took place between the prophet Nathan and King David. And God was not going to let the sin of David be shoved under a rug and forgotten. So under the direction of God, Nathan the prophet confronts David in open court, calls him out, and David faced with the understanding that what he had done in private is now being shouted out publicly, had a decision to make about how he would respond. He had the ability and the authority and his natural authority to have the prophet's head taken off in that moment. But he recognized in that moment of time that this is the voice of prophetic authority. And David says, I hear it, I confess my sin, and I respond to the correction of God. So Nathan came with the message that God has the right to confront our sin. He has the right to reveal it for the purpose of redemption and restoration. Today we're going to be looking at the interaction that takes place between King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. And again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. What has just taken place here is that Elijah has been hiding from Ahab and they're about to get back together. Obadiah was going to help facilitate this meeting and it said, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. 
And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. When I read this story, the first thing that comes to my mind is I marvel at the courage of Elijah. In fact, it must have seemed to him as if it was one man against the world at that particular time. Certainly, in any sense, we would look at this and say he was grossly outnumbered. And even he thought that he was the last follower of God on earth. He thought that he was all alone, and he stood alone on a mountain. And God heard his prayer and miraculously intervened. Are you not glad that we serve a God who hears our prayer and has the ability to miraculously intervene. There's no explanation for sometimes what God does except the fact that he just does miracles. And we have a God today that we serve that nothing is impossible and nothing is too hard for him. But within this account, there is this tension that arises between the natural authority of Ahab the king and the spiritual authority and direction of the prophet Elijah. And God had led Elijah to confront the king and the people demanding that they come to a place where they make a choice. He demanded that they get off the fence, that they quit trying to play both sides, and they determine where it is and how it is that they will worship and that they would have loyalty to the one true God. Let me tell you a little bit in this first point about Ahab and Elijah. As you know, God had been at work in Elijah's life for some time. There had been things that had happened in his life that was building his faith and building his trust in the Lord all along. Remember, he had come to Ahab and told him that as a result of the wickedness of the land and the wickedness of his reign, that there would not be any rain in the land for three years. And when that message was delivered to the king, it became evident almost instantaneously that God was going to honor that and the land began to dry up. Instantly, Ahab looks at Elijah and he became enemy number one. I love the fact that when we are in trouble, we can always find somebody to blame. It's always somebody else's fault when God seems to be at work in ways that we don't like. And Ahab looks at him and says, Elijah, this is all your fault. And during that time, Elijah was sent by God to different places where God would provide for him during this time. He first led him to the brook Cherith. And the Bible says that he was sustained by food and water there. And the food was brought by ravens. Now, for those of you that are curious like I am, 
Did you ever read that and wonder where in the world those birds stole the food from that they brought to him? I mean, they are showing up every day with food and meat, and it had to come from somewhere. I wonder sometimes if maybe they didn't fly into the king's kitchen and take it out of the kitchen of Ahab, fly it to the brook, and that, you know, the prophet is eating the king's meal, and I'm not sure what it tastes like after bird's feet's been all over it, but it was, it was good. It was good. Naturally, during a time where there's no rain, the brook Cherith begin to dry up, and God, in the development of Elijah's faith, leads him to another place. And he sends him to a widow at Zarephath, and there he begins not only to see the miracle of what this little lady had that would never end as a result of his faithfulness. It sustained her and her son, and it sustained the prophet during all of that time. And it was shortly after that that the first resurrection that's ever recorded in the Bible takes place when this widow's son dies and Elijah brings him back to life. All of this in Elijah's life was preparation for the moment that we're going to look at today. And now Elijah is prepared to stand up on a mountain. And he is prepared to represent God, who he now knows is a God that hears prayer and he knows that he's a God that answers prayer because he's experienced it all of his life up to this point. There are some of you today, even as we were worshiping, we were talking about the storms that we go through in life. And I don't know about you, but when I begin to face difficulty and storms in life, my first thought is, God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe that's just me. I don't know if any of you ever go through that or not. But we also discover that in those storms, there are periods of growth that take place in our spiritual walk. There are things that we learn about God that we would never learn in the good times, but it's in the difficult times that we get really fervent in seeking Him. And it's in those moments that God begins to provide for us the strength that we need, the provision that we need, and He begins to hear our prayers that we begin to see our faith beginning to grow in all of that. Each thing we go through is a step in the process. And in 1 Kings 18, 17, it says, When He, Elijah... When he saw Elijah, this is Ahab, he said to you, is that you, you troubler of Israel? In other words, Ahab looks at this man and says, you're the problem. Everything that's happening to us is your fault. And Ahab had held him responsible for everything that was going on in the nation, completely absolving himself of anything. And in verse 18, Elijah says, I'm not the one that's made problems for Israel. It's you and your father. That family you have, you've abandoned the Lord's commands. You've followed the Baals. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to summon all of the people of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring with you 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, I want you just to stop for one moment and think about this. How many of you have lots of family over at your house on Thanksgiving? A few of you. How many of you are perfectly happy to go to somebody else's house at Thanksgiving. More of you. I was trying to picture what the king's table looked like if they had 950 people at every meal. I mean, it says that they were at the table of Jezebel. In other words, I don't know what their cooks were like, but it was a big job to have everybody there. But that's how close Jezebel and Ahab were to all of these false prophets. And I look at this and I'm going, man, I, I love Elijah. Elijah's slightly a wild man. Any of you know people like that? They're just, they're just slightly on the edge a little bit. Of, you're, you're wondering where they're thinking and what's going on. And, and so here comes Elijah and he faces Ahab who blames him for everything. And Elijah says to him, I want you to get all 
of the priests and all of the prophets of Baal. And I want you to get all of the people. And I want you to meet me at Mount Carmel. And we're going to have a little contest on the top of the mountain there. And we're going to decide by the time it's over who is going to be the God of Israel. Is it going to be Jehovah God or is it going to be Baal? Basically, he said, I want you to bring everybody. I don't want anybody left in the nation that is not there to see what's going to happen. And I look at that, and interesting enough, Ahab goes along with it. If he had just had one ounce of brains in his head, he might think to himself, if this man had the power to keep it from raining for the last three years, I'm not sure I want to go into a spiritual contest with him. But he didn't. And so he agrees to this contest. And so there's the call to Mount Carmel. Before I tell you the story, let me tell you a little bit about Mount Carmel that will give you a little bit of context, both geographically and spiritually, as to what was happening here. Mount Carmel sets 1,800 feet above sea level. Mount Carmel is on the border of Israel and Phoenicia. Now, if you might remember, Jezebel was a Sidonian, and she had come from Phoenicia. And so this place where this spiritual contest was about to take place was on the top of a mountain between the land of Jezebel and the land of Jehovah, right there in the middle, between the land of Baal and the land of God. On the top of this mountain where everybody was going to come is going to be the shootout at the OK Corral. And as the people are being summoned, they begin to arrive, and you, you have to picture thousands and thousands and thousands of people are coming to get as close as they can to the mountain so that they can see what's taking place there. And then the king, as Ahab arrives, is probably on a very well-decorated chair, and the guys are carrying it on their shoulders, and he arrives, and he gets the best seat to see everything that's going to take place there. And the crowds part for him as he comes through, as he proudly sits there on the shoulders of the men that carry him and they deliver him to the place where he's going to sit and then Elijah shows up Elijah does not have a posse remember he thinks he's the only believer left in the whole world chances are the people are a little bit afraid of this wild man and so they give him room as he begins to make his way to the place there he goes and he stands there all by himself as he gets ready for the contest of Mount Carmel and it tells us in verse 21, Elijah went before the people. And I thought about what it would be like to address a whole nation, hundreds of prophets. The king is sitting there, and you don't have a sound system. I don't know how all this works, but he declared well enough, and he says, how long will you waver? Will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people said absolutely nothing. Now, I want you to notice here that Elijah's sermons weren't very long, but they were really pointed. He got right to the point. And he had to say what he needed to say, and he said it in as few words as possible, but the impact of it just reverberated. And basically what he was saying in the terminology he used is, quit wavering. Quit trying to live two lives. Quit trying to play both sides of the fence. Quit trying to have the best of all the worlds. And the term that's used here in Hebrew, this, this 
faltering word is really a word that's used to describe a lame man who was faltering and walking back and forth and has no balance. He said, you cannot live a balanced life until you choose whom you will serve. And the entire nation, the Bible says, doesn't say a word. Absolutely silent. And Elijah said, this is a battle between Baal and the God of Israel. Winner take all. And so Elijah turns his attention now to the prophets of Baal that were standing around there. And he says to them, make two altars of stone. And then stack up the wood on them. And then choose which of these two bulls that you want. And you slaughter it. And you put it on the altar that you have built. But don't light any fire to it. And we're going to pray. And we're going to see which God will answer by fire. And whichever God sends the fire will be the God of Israel. I want you to notice, first of all, how how much of a good sport that Elijah was. He really shows great sportsmanship in all of this because you have to believe, number one, he looked at all of them and he says, you build both altars. You can build the altar I'm going to use, build the altar you're going to use. You choose the bull that you want. I mean, this is all in your, your power. You take care of all of this. He's giving the prophets of Baal every advantage. After they built both altars, and I'm certain that they built the one that they wanted, it was probably a little bit better, and they were leaving his a little bit you know, broken down, and you know, just every advantage that they could possibly get. They outnumbered him 450 to 1. He looks around and goes, you guys go first. Remember, this is sudden death. This is winner take all. Whoever answers by fire first was the winner. So if Baal had answered by fire first, Elijah would never even have gotten a chance to tie. And besides this, let me tell you a little bit of something about the character of what people believed about Baal. Baal's strengths were all built into this context. You see, Baal was a sun god. He was the god of warmth and heat. Baal's area of expertise was storms. So fire and lightning would have been right in Baal's sweet spot. This should play right into what Baal does. Then you add into that the geographical advantage that when storms come, generally lightning hits the top of mountains first. In the event that there was going to be a storm come, it would have been likely that the top of Mount Carmel will have been where the lightning bolt would have been aimed at. Everything about this contest gave every natural advantage to take out an altar on the top of a mountain to Baal and its prophets. So why did he let them go first? Because Elijah knew something that apparently they didn't know, and that was that Baal was nothing. Now, for those of you who are really, really good with math, if I remember correctly, 450 prophets of Baal times zero equals zero. There's about 12 of you that are really good mathematicians in here today. No matter the number, if it's times zero, it's a zero. And so as it begins, this dancing and shouting and all the theatrics that the prophets begin to do, they begin to jump up and down and they're leaping and they're chanting and they're yelling and they're praying and they're putting on all kind of commotion. And I'm certain that it held all of the people that are at the mountain as they're watching this. They're just in awe as to the activity that are taking place from the 450 prophets of Baal that are doing everything in their power to make sure that they win this contest. 
It says that a little bit later on, after all of their activities came to nothing, that they said, well, maybe we need to do a little bit more. So they took spears and knives and they began to cut themselves. Thinking, maybe if we just sacrifice our own blood, that Baal will respond to this. I wish that I could speak to every young person in America on this one subject, and that's this. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the God of Jesus Christ, gives his blood for your redemption. The gods of this present age want your blood. And then at noon, after they've been going at this for several hours, Elijah begins to taunt them. How many of you speak sarcasm? It's a, it's a language. Some of you are really, really good at, at the language of sarcasm. I think Elijah probably spoke sarcasm. And so he begins to see what's going on, and so he begins just to taunt them, and he, and he tells them, you know what? You still have voices. Maybe you should shout just a little bit louder. And you know that they just begin to holler as loud as they can. And, and, and you know, then he says, you know, surely, surely, Baal, Baal's real. I mean, surely this is going to be doing something for you, isn't it? And perhaps today is his study day, and he's in deep thought and just doesn't want to come out of the room and talk to you or... Maybe he's busy traveling or sleeping, or there's been some that suggest that in Scripture, what there really is trying to say is, maybe he's sitting on the toilet and just doesn't want to talk to you today. <laughs> so exhausted and humiliated, having prayed all day for hours, the evening arrives, and the Scripture results these words at the end of verse 29 of 1 Kings 18. There was no response no one answered. No one paid attention. If you don't know Jesus today, you're serving in no one. There'll be no one to answer. There'll be no one to hear. There'll be nobody to pay attention to you. And then it was Elijah's turn. And Elijah steps up to the altar that they had built for him, and he takes and he slaughters the bull, and he puts it on the wood, and then in the presence of all the people, by now they must be exhausted, having stood there all day. Elijah does something that's quite unexpected, and he begins to say, I need you to bring me water. And he pours barrels of water, and he pours it on the sacrifice, and, and he soaks it, and it's saturated, and the wood is wet, the, the, the sacrifice is wet, the trench around the, the area has turned into mud, there's water in it. I mean, it's just dripping wet. And the priests of Baal have got to be feeling pretty good about it right now because they thought, if ever there was an opportunity that there might be fire, there is no possible way now that that sacrifice can ever be burned up. In fact, they're thinking, the worst we can come out of this with today is a tie. And nobody answers. And Elijah steps up and he says a very simple prayer. And he does this in contrast to the fact that they have been putting on a concert of wildness all day long. And it's recorded for us in verses 36 and 37 of the 18th chapter of 1 Kings when he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I want you to look at the contrast of what's taken place. The prophets of Baal have been carrying on for hours. 
Elijah's prayer lasted 30 seconds. And depending on the version of the Bible that you have, it's about 60 words long. You see, the power of prayer does not reside in its words. It resides in the person to whom you are praying. And the fire of God at the end of that prayer flames out of the sky and it burns up the sacrifice and it burns up the wood and it burns up the stones and it leaps off the altar and it burns up that water like it's gasoline and everybody suddenly falls face down as they recognize they're in the presence of the living God. Do you see what God is saying to us today? No matter how sin-soaked a country is, no matter how saturated an evil life is or how sin-saturated a culture is, when it is placed on the altar of God, God will answer by sanctifying fire to anything that you'll lay on the altar for Him. That He will change you and He will work within you. So God first said, I claim ownership of you. You are mine. Then God says, I claim your behavior. I have the right to call you to repentance. I have the right to send you through restoration and renew you and bring revival through you. And then God, through prophecy, says, I have the right to bring a sanctifying fire into your life to burn out what does not need to be there. And Elijah reminds the people, you see who answered by fire? Now, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then serve him. If you want to serve Baal, then give it all you've got. Give it all you've got to him, but choose whom you will serve. And I believe that that is a message to the church of Jesus Christ today. How long will you hinder yourself between wanting the best of both worlds I want the blessing of God, and I want to be normal in society. God says today, only one of us answers by fire because only one of us is real. Only one of us has the ability to transform your life. And whatever you lay on the altar, I will take, and I will sanctify you. There's a TV show that many of you may be familiar with. It's called Heartland. It's produced by the Canadian TV stations. And it's about three generations of people that live on a ranch and... Canada. A lot of horses involved in this show, and there was one particular episode where one of the girls that was one of the lead in this was trying to learn to be a trick rider because she wanted to be a part of the rodeo. How many of you have ever been to a rodeo? There's a few of you really good people around here. <laughs> At the rodeo, the way they begin is that everybody that's going to be involved in the rodeo, they put on their best clothes. I mean, their shirts are bedazzled, all different colors, the best-looking cowboy hats they've got, and they run around and, and make this big parade, and everybody cheers for them, and then generally they have this trick rider that comes and does all these tricks. Well, this girl had wanted to do that, and the trick she was learning was to ride two white stallions side-by-side side with her foot on each one of them. And as she's really getting good at this, there was one day when her little niece came out to the fence to watch this, and just as the horses were reaching full speed, her little niece reaches through the fence and kind of gives a wave, and the west horse went west, and the east horse went east, and she began to just tumble on the ground. And God spoke to me, and he says, there's a lesson to be learned in this. You do not stand and ride two horses at the same time. Elijah says, make up your mind. Four things I want to leave you with really, really quickly. 
Number one, this tells us that not all religions are the same. I don't know where that idea started, but it came from hell, not from heaven. There are not many ways to heaven. There's only one. John 14, 6 declares that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. On that day on Mount Carmel, it mattered a great deal who you trusted in. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Don't let anyone tell you that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in a religion. That belief will get you to hell. Second thing we learn from this is activities and enthusiasms are not necessarily a sign of spirituality. These prophets were sincere in their activity. They were doing everything in their power. There was a lot of enthusiasm. There was a lot of activity. They tried everything they knew, but it wasn't worth anything. And some people say, but they seem so sincere. You know, it's, it's the sincerity of the heart. Oh, no, it's not. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Mount Carmel proves that. Thirdly, what we learn from this is that the act of faith is not the most important thing, but the object of your faith is. I am sure that the people that were following Baal that day had all kind of faith. They had worshipped this God, many of them, all their lives. They believed in Baal. They sincerely had faith in Baal. But their faith was worthless because the object of their faith was worthless. And lastly, we learned that the faith you live by better be good enough to die by. The faith that you live by better be good enough to die by because if your faith doesn't bring you hope and help in crisis, then it's not worth very much to you. Elijah had built his faith in the quietness of a brook and in the confines of a widow's home. He was walking in a wilderness every day trusting God, and when he needed his faith big, God came through because the object of his faith was real. 